You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, it's great to see all of you here. And what you just saw was an introduction really to Mark chapter 11, which is where we are in our study of the gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, please open to that. If you have a phone, please pull out your app and turn that on and go to that. A tablet, whatever, as we study God's word together. If you were with us in our earlier series through the other gospels, most recently John, but we've also done Matthew and Luke, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is what that video was illustrating, just because of the volume of passages and really verses that we need to look at this morning. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, so I would direct you back to our website under our sermon archives to look at one of those um, earlier uh, focuses that we've done on the triumphal entry, but we are going to jump off of this into what we are going to study today. What you saw being illustrated there was really the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It comes out of Zechariah 9.9, and this is quoted in Mark 11. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. So Jesus was expected In fact, Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, this being one of them. And yet, this is kind of unexpected. Because when a king king came back from victory to a city, and there was great celebration over the victory that had been won, he came back on a war horse because he had been at war. And yet, this king comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey which was a symbol of peace. This king was not coming to conquer the Romans. He was coming to conquer sin and death by offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice in order to do so through his death, burial, and resurrection. But this unexpected king, so to speak, comes to Jerusalem and then he continues to do the unexpected and that is what we're gonna look at this morning. Because what Mark has done, as he often does, is he will take a story and he will embed it in another story. Scholars like to call this a Markan sandwich. He sandwiches these stories together, and we'll see that this morning. And the story that brackets the interior story is meant to explain it. And so we will look at a passage that is familiar to many of you. It is the passage about Jesus clearing the temple. But around this story is another story of a fig tree. And the fig tree actually explains what this unexpected king is doing so unexpectedly in the temple. And as we look at that, we really are going to get a picture of what fruitful faith, vibrant faith, growing faith, intimate faith with Jesus really looks like. So that's where we're headed this morning. So Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem And then this is what he does. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12, which was a town very close to Jerusalem. Can you advance that for me, please, Aaron? Thank you. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it wasn't the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, and this is a quote out of Isaiah, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it, quote, from Jeremiah 7, a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, here comes our story of the fig tree again, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Wow, is that loaded. So let's begin to work our way through that. Let's go back to verse 11. So Jesus goes into the temple. He has just been recognized and worshiped by many for who he really was, the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So now he goes into the temple and he looks around at everything. And Mark is going to give us some very important details in this story that we need to pay attention to. Just to remind you, of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark is the most abbreviated. So when he gives you a detail, it matters. And he tells us Jesus saw everything. So what do you think he was thinking? We're about to find out. He looks around and sees everything. So the next day, after staying at Bethany, they come back. It's sometime in the morning. Presumably, Jesus is hungry. Maybe like some of you are hungry. You didn't really have a chance to eat breakfast yet. What have you? Maybe he had a light meal. Whatever the case, he was hungry. And he sees a fig tree in leaf. And he goes to find out if it has any fruit. And he finds nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now, we can read this and say, understandably, that's a little weird. Does Jesus not know the seasons? Of course the fig tree doesn't have any fruit. It's not the season for figs. But that's not what this word means. This is not the word in the original language for a growing season. This is a word for meaning the season of time. This word is the exact word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 1 when he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Same word that he uses there for time. This is a different kind of season that Mark is referencing here. And then Jesus picks on this poor little tree. This is the only miracle, by the way, 
that Jesus performs that is solely based on judgment and condemnation. This is the only time. Don't you feel sorry for that little fig tree? What did it do? Jesus, give the tree a break. And Mark once again gives us this detail. His disciples heard him say it because he will come back to this. So he goes into Jerusalem now after picking on the tree and he begins to overturn the, the, the benches, the tables, and it's, it's remarkable what he's doing here because this is the last thing you would expect Jesus to do. Don't you go to the temple to worship? Why is Jesus doing this? It, it really makes no sense. And yet there's more here than meets the eye. Because as we begin to piece together what we've just read, it begins to make a little more sense. Number one, a fig tree in the Old Testament was representative of blessing and hope and prosperity and the gifts of God. And Jesus withers, really curses, as it's described, this fig tree because the fig tree is representative of what's going on in the temple. Jesus goes to this fig tree and a fig tree in, that isn't in season but has begun to leave has these little tiny pre-fig buds that you can eat. In fact, during this time of the year, travelers to the Passover would look for fig trees so they could eat these little buds because they were, they were good, they were nourishing and there were forerunners to actual figs. So when Jesus went over to that fig tree, there should have been little buds on it and there were. And the reason why is because it was diseased. It was sick. And really it was, it was dying. And it is a picture of what is going on in the temple. Jesus is doing more than overturning tables. He is overturning the sacrificial system and he is exposing the hearts, the corrupted hearts of the people and their leadership. And the reason we know this is because of the quotes that Jesus gives us. One of the values that we have as a preaching team that every sermon is evaluated on, one of the values is are we equipping you to read your Bible for yourself? equipping you to do the work of the ministry. And this is one of those occasions where we want to back up for a minute and do just that. Whenever you see an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, it is imperative that you go back to the Old Testament and you read that verse in context to get the meaning of why Jesus or the other, or the gospel writers rather, or the other writers of the New Testament are saying that. So let's do that. Jesus quotes um, Isaiah. So let's go back to that passage. It's Isaiah 56. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs, and let's stop for a minute. A eunuch is someone who is not able to have a family of their own, and they were excluded from the temple as a result. They could not worship in the temple, but look what he says here. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters and realize and recognize and appreciate that in that culture, much value was attached to family. 
And if you had sons or daughters or children or what have you, and God is saying here, I'm going to give you something even better than that. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And this is what Jesus referenced. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, who eventually, in fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, will eventually join God's chosen people, the Jews, in the temple someday, and they will be one people of God to worship God. Who does that include? Everybody. All nations. Us. It's awesome. And look what Jesus goes on to say when he says, quotes Jeremiah rather, he says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal or Baal, take your pick, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. This is what Jesus is quoting too. It matters how you live your life. And right relationship with God is more important than religion or ritual. You can't just live however you want and then go to the temple and expect to be okay with God. He's a little smarter than that and it's a lot more serious than that. That's not what worship is. And that's what Jesus is exposing here. This fig tree is fruitless because the temple and God's people are as well. Jesus isn't just overturning tables. He's overturning the sacrificial system because he is going to fulfill that by being the ultimate sacrifice who dies on a cross for the sins of the world, rises again, and for all who will believe and receive him, they become the children of God forgiven, redeemed, restored. This is a fusion of two things. The Mosaic law, which the people were following, but the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham to bless all people through Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. The fig tree is diseased and dying because the temple and really the hearts of the people are diseased and dying. And the reason it tells us that the fig tree was withered to the root is because the root determines the fruit with trees and with people. So where do we go from here? What does that mean for you and me? What Jesus says in response to all this is absolutely golden. It is amazing, and that's what we're going to unpack. People are amazed at him because they don't understand what he's doing. And Jesus is about to tell us what he's doing. The fig tree is cursed because it's dying and decaying, and so is the temple. So Jesus says, have faith in God. You want to have a fruitful life? You want to have fruitful faith? Then it starts with God. It's sourced in God. And some of us might say, well, no, duh. Well, of course. If you want to have fruitful faith, it, of course it's sourced in God. 
But we need to take a step back, though, and look what's really going on here. These were people and leaders of these people who were religious. They went to the temple. They gave their time. They gave their resources. They went through all the motions of worshiping God. On the outside looking in, someone would have said, wow, that's who I need to be like. And yet, their hearts were wrong. Is it possible to know the word of God and not know the God of the word? Yes. Yes. The basis of a relationship with God is not about what you know, it is about who you know. And it's a chasm of difference between the two. Is it possible to come here on Sunday mornings to hear sermons and to read your Bible and to be involved in the Advent Conspiracy and be involved in ministry and to give to Grace Unleashed and give to the Mission of Vision and do all this stuff and not know Jesus? Yeah, it is. It really is. So there is a warning here. And you know what the real litmus test of whether your faith is sourced in God or not is this, your relationships. Because how did Jesus say the entire Bible can be defined and summarized? Love God. Love people. So for the person who comes here and worships God and does all these things that we would say are are good things and are worshipful things, for the person who does that and comes here cynical and leaves here week after week still cynical, there is a problem. For the person who comes here and does all these things and comes through the doors, critical, they're a critical negative person and they leave here, still a critical negative person, there is a problem. For the person who comes through these doors every Sunday morning with their insecurities, I have them and so do you, and they leave here with those insecurities never being challenged and never being changed by the gospel, there's a problem. In fact, if we really want to take this to the direction it needs to go and really to the heart of what Jesus is talking about here is this. Are you more loving than you were a year ago? Am I more loving than I was six months ago? And as hard as that is to quantify and qualify, we have to ask the question. That's the real question of is your faith and relationship and trust in Jesus real? What are your relationships like with God and with, with, other, with other people? Because it's so easy for us to love other things more than God, is it not? John Calvin, the great church father, said the human heart is an idol-making factory. We constantly do battle with taking good things and making them ultimate things. And really what that practically looks like in daily life is loving things or even other people more than God. And we've seen examples of this all throughout Mark. Think think with me back to the rich young young ruler, the rich guy. He was morally rich. He was materially rich. He is the person who everyone in that culture and really in this culture would say, that's who you want to be like, and he was far from God because his money and his morality were his God. That's why Jesus told him to go sell everything. Only time 
in the New Testament where Jesus tells someone to give away and sell everything they have because he knew that that man's riches were his God because he loved them more than God despite how moral he was. And so it goes with us. Is your faith, is my faith sourced in God? We have to ask the question of who do we love more? Our comfort, our stuff, our career, our success, what we do more than Jesus. But he goes on to say this. He says that fruitful faith is faith that looks like this. If you say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and you don't doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Man, is that a remarkable promise. That is awesome. And you know how this verse unfortunately gets used at times as people will go to this verse, ignore the context, point to it and say, you can ask for whatever you want and God will give it to you. Really? Is that, is that what that says? Does it say any mountain? If you go to any mountain and tell it to throw itself in the sea, this is what's going to No. It says this mountain because once again in the context of this, Jesus is making a point. And it's a significant one and it's an important one and it's one we've got to get a hold of. This mountain, most scholars believe he's referring to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was and where the temple was. And what he's talking about is this dynamic. We have to understand and appreciate the temple was the epicenter of Jewish life. It was where commerce took place. It's where politics took place. It's where your social life took place. It's where the focus of your spiritual life was. It was the temple. The very presence of God was, was there. And so that's why literally to this day, Jews will come from all over the world who don't even live in Israel to come to Jerusalem to this. This is known as the western wall of the temple or the wailing wall. And those first bottom layers there are stones that go back over 2,000 years to when the temple was built during Jesus' time. And people will come from all over the world to this place to pray. Here's, a, here's another look. Do you know where I am in that picture? I'm not the guy in black. I'm the guy in the fluorescent running jacket off to the right there. <laughs> Nothing like blending in, right? Praying for those around me because they're praying to a place rather than to the person of God. Because it was believed that your prayers, if offered at the temple, were more powerful there than any other place. Because you're in the presence of God. When we were flying to Israel and we had a layover in Istanbul, Turkey, there, were some, there was a group of Orthodox Jews who stopped in the middle of the concourse and faced the direction of Jerusalem and prayed. Because they believed their prayers were more powerful because that's where the temple is. The wailing wall is divided into two quarters. There's an area for men and an area for women. This is a picture of three women in the women's area. And you may or may not be able to see this depending on where you're sitting in the auditorium here. But in the cracks of those stones, you see little white things. Those are pieces of paper. Because people will literally write prayer requests and mail them in from all over the world and they will be placed 
within the walls of the temple because it's believed prayers offered there are more powerful than any other place. Practicing Jews will write their prayers down and daily come there and place those within the wall of the temple. And what's so significant about what Jesus is saying here is that the temple, the building, is not where God is. God is far closer than that. Galatians chapter five tells us that if you know Jesus, I am crucified in Christ and therefore I no longer live because Christ lives in me. And the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This God doesn't live in a building. God comes and lives in us through the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying here is that fruitful faith overcomes insurmountable odds He is reminding us that we have the authority, we have the privilege, we have the place, we have the relationship to pray to God because God is with us. We don't have to go to a particular place to do that. And we can't lose the forest through the trees here, so to speak. He wants us to have a faith that believes the impossible. Fruitful prayer is powerful prayer and it is impossible prayer. And that's how he wants us to pray. According to his will, asking the impossible. Because again, he reminds us, if you ask for it in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. That's a promise, folks. And how many promises does God keep? All of them. He he keeps all of his promises. When we pray in accordance with his will, he promises to give us whatever whatever we ask for. And unfortunately, this gets twisted all the time to say, oh, just ask for whatever you want and God will give that to you. No, that's not what it's saying here. The the closer we grow in our intimacy with God, the more we will pray prayers that are in accordance with his will and, and we'll see him do amazing, remarkable things. So let's take that for a test drive. What are you praying for these days? What is that impossible prayer that you were praying? Well, I'll give you some examples from my life. Three weeks ago, the impossible prayer was that we'd find a worship leader. Do you realize it's been 14 months since Billy left? This is his fault. (laughs) And I take every opportunity to, to remind him of that. But it's been 14 months since he left. And God bless Tony Landolt and Bonnie Knopf and Bill Krieger. They have so lovingly, faithfully served us and volunteered their time. Tony in particular, because he's been carrying the bulk of our worship leading the last 14 months, that guy is golden. When you see him, you thank him. Yeah, absolutely. But we like Tony. We don't want to kill him off. And he's tired, and understandably so. So three weeks ago, do you know how many worship leader applicants we had? Zero. Someone who we had taken through the process really far and we're really excited about backed out and said, you know, no. So three weeks ago, the impossible prayer for me was, God, how about one? 
Just one qualified, excited worship applicant in a day and a half, we had three. In the last four weeks, we've been working a very deliberate, thorough, but expedited process. We've narrowed that three to one. I've been gone from you the last two Sundays because I've been watching worship leaders, these applicants, in their churches covertly. Don't tell them. And we've got it down to one. We will release his bio to you next week. In two weeks, the final part of the application interviewing process will be for him to come lead worship here. He'll come lead on November 13th. There's only one problem. His name is Jay. <laughs> I, what kind of place is this? Another Jay, please do not hold that against him, okay? He is a great guy. He is highly qualified, highly gifted. We are profoundly excited to bring him and introduce him to you, and we'll give you more information on him next week. And then you can, you know, Facebook stalk him and do all those things you do. But very excited. But that was an impossible prayer three weeks ago. I was very discouraged. And look what God did. Man, Grace Unleashed, we talked about that earlier in the service. You know, we're gonna try to raise a good portion, if not all, of $1.3 million in the next two years. That's reaching for it. And if you're like me, you give to the mission and vision with, with, with what God gives you, and you're gonna modify Christmas traditions just like we have and will for Advent conspiracy to generate re those resources. So where are the resources going to come for Grace Unleashed? Good question. Some of you have that and, and can give to that, and that's fantastic. Some of you are like our family, and we're going, we don't have that. But we're going to trust God to provide it. And I would love to hear what those stories are for you. W would you do me a favor? If you're participating in Grace Unleashed or you're planning on it, would you grab a communication card sometime this morning? You can do it right now. I won't tell anybody. But if you grab it, would you please write down how you're praying and hoping God will provide for Grace Unleashed? And don't put your name on it. It can be anonymous. I'm the only one who's going to look at these. I, I'd just love to hear what you're trusting God for, what you're praying for, and how, how you're hoping he'll, he'll provide. And we could do this with so many other things, but how often do we pray little prayers with little faith, and then if that wasn't enough, then God actually answers, and we don't thank him. You ever done that? That's the receiving part of this. He wants us to pray impossible prayers. He wants us to believe him for the impossible, to step out in faith and to trust, but when he actually answers, how do we respond? Man, I, I hope it's with thanksgiving. I hope it's with, I hope it's with praise, because part of fruitful faith is this dynamic as well. And man, is this a big one. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Fruitful faith is a faith that forgives. God is a God of forgiveness. In Exodus 34, that's how he describes himself. And we should be people who are characterized by forgiveness. You ever been wronged? Ever been hurt by someone? 
Are you alive? Of course you have, right? Would you please tell me who came up with the phrase forgive and forget? Because I would guess they were never wronged. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. It's far more complicated than that. And yet there's a piece to forgiveness that's very direct and very simple. Not easy, but simple. Because it is intrinsic in what Jesus is saying here and it is explicit in what is said elsewhere. Consider with me Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Let's say that again. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Especially if you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Why do we forgive other people? Especially when we don't feel like it. And in fairness, do we ever feel like it? Why would you forgive someone who has legitimately wronged you? Because hasn't God forgiven you? The gospel and living out the gospel is always a response for what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is always a response to what Jesus has done for us. Why do you give? Because God has given to you. Why do you love other people? Because God loves you. Why do you forgive people? Because God has forgiven you. That's why Jesus can say this. And this gets real practical real quick. God in his great sense of humor, whenever I preach and teach his word, always gives me opportunity to practice. (laughs) I'm living this with you. And this week I was on both sides of this equation. Someone wronged me and I went to them and confronted them and they asked my forgiveness. And I granted that forgiveness. And by the way, that's profoundly important to do. When someone comes to you and asks for forgiveness, it is necessary, it is nourishing, it is right, it is loving for you to accept their apology and to tell them that. I receive your apology, I forgive you. Those words are just as important as, please forgive me. And so I did. And the next day, someone came to me someone who I care about and told me how I had wronged them and deeply hurt them. And it's no one in this room and we're not talking about my family, okay? But you know what I wanted to do? Justify myself. But, but I didn't intend for that to happen. Well, if I've hurt someone, it really doesn't matter what my intentions were, they're still hurt, Right? And I didn't say this, I promise. But boy, it can sure go here, can it? And, and how often do we, do we not respond to that well? And we say things like, well, you know, if you weren't such a jerk, that wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have acted that way. That's not an apology, for the record. Or we say, I'm sorry you feel like that. That's not an apology either. And I know those things don't happen in your homes or relationships, but for those that that does happen, no, no. I was wrong, and I ask your forgiveness. Hard words, but necessary words. 
And you don't necessarily wait till you feel like it when you say those words. And then every time that offense comes back up in your mind when you are forgiving something, you do the hard work of reminding yourself, I have forgiven. It's not forgive and forget. It's forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. It's a, it's a process. All that being said, if you and I have a faith that is vibrant and growing and real and representative of intimacy with Jesus, we will be people who are characterized by forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness and we grant it. Because there is a warning here in this passage. The warning is this, that if we don't forgive others, God will not bless us. God does not bless brokenness. And could it be that some of you aren't experiencing the fruitfulness, the joy, the peace, the blessing of God in your life because you haven't forgiven? And sometimes we're there and we feel stuck. And this is a God who's a God of redemption and a God of hope and a God who forgives and he will empower you and me to forgive others because he wants to bless your life. You have to get that in your head because so many people don't picture God as a God who wants to bless. He wants to bless your life more than anyone. So will you let him? Will you have a fruitful faith that is sourced in him? that prays the impossible, that believes and trusts him for the impossible and that when he answers, thanks him and celebrates what he's done and that forgives because he first forgave you and me. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we worship you, as we respond to your spirit, your word in our lives, Lord, we ask that you will grow our faith. Lord, I, I think of that prayer that we read earlier in your gospel. Lord, help my unbelief. Would you help my unbelief? Would you help us to be people who believe? Not who necessarily try harder, but who believe more. And Lord, help us to have the same kind of faith that Peter had. When you asked him to step out of that boat and walk on the water, he trusted you and he did that. Help us to have that same kind of faith that takes you at your word, that believes you and then lives that out and reaps and receives the blessing that you wanna give us as a result. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you're here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.